The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Can you learn about the medieval mindset by spending time with modern monks? Today's guest, Dr Benjamin Pohl, has done exactly that in the course of his research into medieval abbots and their role in writing history. He spoke to our content director, Dave Musgrove, to explain more. Today I'm talking to Dr. Benjamin Paul, Senior Lecturer in Medieval History at the University of Bristol. Ben, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Well, not at all. Thank you for having me. Now, you've been working on a, on a research project, which is shortly going to see the publication of a book, Medieval Abbots and the Writing of History. It's all about how and why medieval monks, and specifically abbots, got involved in the writing of history. Part of the project also involved you spending a week at a monastic retreat with the monks of Downside Abbey, which we'll want to hear about uh, a bit later on. Now, I'm just going to um, uh, drop in a couple of quotes from some of the uh, from some of the, the, the project uh, data. The project showcases Benedictine monasteries as centres of history, where historical knowledge has been collected and cultivated for centuries, and you've been exploring how and why medieval Benedictine abbots engaged firsthand with the writing of history by recording the traditions and collective memories of their monastic communities. So that sounds pretty interesting to me, but let's let's get back into the story. Um, let's uh, let's uh, centre our listeners here. So can you take us back to the start of the story, remind us uh, the origins of Benedictine monasteries, how far they spread geographically, how important they were in the fabric of medieval society? Uh, and the role of abbots, particularly within them. I'm going to do something that is perhaps not particularly popular with um, radio listeners and students by starting with a caveat, so occupational hazard of a historian. Um, because the term uh, Benedictine monasticism or Benedictine abbots and monks is actually more of a sort of catch-all phrase that we use for ease of reference. Um, and we we must not think of it as um, a stable phenomenon that was sort of universal or or ubiquitous in character. But actually what we're talking about is a panorama of um, religious communal lifestyles that developed in a lot of different directions and experimentally as well over many centuries um, across the medieval period and indeed beyond. Um, but it is a term, of course, that both in uh, common parlor and in in the academic uh, academic world is used as a convenient shorthand, and this is how we're going to use it, um, I think, for the conversation as well. Even though scholars lately have tried to come up with alternative, more precise terms, but I think they'll do for us for us today. Um, and of course, uh, what we associate when we talk or hear about uh, Benedictine monasticism or monasticisms um, are two things: it's Saint Benedict himself. Um, and the rule of St. Benedict. Um, and this takes us back into the early medieval period, um, into the later 5th and 6th centuries um, with Benedict. Um, as far as we know, most of the information we actually have about Benedict himself as a historical person and his deeds uh, come from the dialogues of Pope Gregory the Great, um, written with a particular agenda of, of presenting Benedict as this pious model of a of a man and religious charismatic leader um, and founder of um, a whole series of monasteries, including, of course, the monastery of Monte Cassino, where he then became the first abbot. And um, as far as we know, and if we can 
believe Gregory's testimony wrote the rule of St. Benedict as a set of principles um, for communal religious life. Um, applicable, by the way, to both male and female communities. So you know, not just talking or thinking about monks, we're equally talking about religious women uh, when we, and, and that is important for me to stress as well, that the project looks not just as, at male abbots, but also at their female counterparts at, at abbesses. Ah, okay. So, so we've gone back to uh, like the, the early medieval period, the the fifth, sixth centuries. There. So, how how far and wide did these uh, did, the, did the rule of Benedict and these monasteries that followed his rule um, go into play? That is that is the interesting thing here, because the the rule of Saint Benedict is is neither the only nor indeed the first rule um, uh, set down in writing. Um, about the principles of monastic life, but is one of many and actually preceded by by several um, from as early as about the fourth century. Um, and a lot of this early development of monasticism takes place outside of, of Western Europe, um, particularly um, in, in the Middle East. So we have uh, Syria and Palestine, we have North Africa, um, and then um, from about um, relatively early on also in parts of Gaul and, and Italy. Um, the the special thing, if you like, um, about the rule of St. Benedict is, is less its content, but the story of its success, that it would be the, the one rule prevailing um, for many centuries, up to a point where shortly after about the year 1000, it can claim more or less a monopoly in most of the Latin West um, until about the 12th century, when we have new um, exper experiments in communal religious living taking place um, and spreading across Europe. So it's the, it's the longevity and, and actually the, the widespread nature of religious communities following the principles, um, not necessarily always to the letter, I should say as well, but adopting them um, and adapting them creatively for their, to meet their own regional or local circumstance that makes the rule of St. Benedict so interesting to study. So we shouldn't think of it as, even though it is of course a guideline for monastic life and a widely subscribed one, we shouldn't think of it as too rigorous in its, in its application um, or adoption across the medieval world. Okay, so you've just said there, so around about the year 1000, uh, Benedictine monasticism or monasticisms, as if we're following the uh, the academic rigor there, um, is kind of is is the is the main form of, of monasticism in Western Europe. Um, important in the fabric of medieval society. What, what's what's it what's it doing? What's its role in medieval society? Um, it has a lot of roles, as a matter of fact, and um, I have to take you back slightly before the turn of the millennium to explain some of this uh, into the Carolingian period. So um, Charlemagne and his immediate successors, um, particularly Louis the Pious, um, where we see this, this, this uh, incentive of combining religious reform, monastic reform in particular, with very concrete politics, um, where we have what we might in modern parlor call, you know, state dynamics and the state apparatus actually employing and actively promoting um, this particular style of religious living and the particular sets of principles and rules associated therewith um, in order to achieve something resembling unity across the Carolingian Empire. Um, and that means, of course, that unlike the very early forms of monasticism where you have um, people living very remotely and almost, though quite never, uh, in perfect isolation from the main centers of society, we now get a very strong connection between the secular world um, and the religious world, uh, wherein these monasteries play a, a range of functions. Um, for example, by hosting um, powerful guests and visitors, by having patrons from 
the very upper echelons of society, but having founders um, who are themselves members of royal or aristocratic families and who plant, if you like, uh, their own dynastic policies and personnel within these monasteries. So it's it's quite important for us to realize that these monasteries don't exist in isolation from society, but actually play a very crucial part in the very center of society at the time. Okay, so that's good. So we, we've centered ourselves there, but then we also need to understand the role of abbots and, and abbesses, as, as you said, uh, as heads of these communities. So what, what, what did an abbot or abbess actually do? Well, um, again, if we, if we look back into, say, the rule of St. Benedict and some of the other monastic codes um, of, the, of the early medieval period, um, the word abbot and abbess uh, comes from Ar Aramaic, uh, abba and amma, which are the words for father and mother. And this is very important for our understanding of monasticism or monasticisms, that these are father and mother figures. First of all, they are responsible for the communities and everybody they're in. They need to lead the communities by word and deed. So they need to set an example of pious living for their monks and nuns. Um, but of course, they also play a range of other functions. They have, especially from the Carolingian period onwards and into the, the second millennium, an increasing amount of administrative responsibility um, with their abbeys and monasteries acquiring more and more land and wealth and property, communal property, because of course, individual property is is not permitted within these these monastic communities so they become in many ways diplomats they become administrators but they also become charismatic religious leaders and reformers so it's a very complex role with a lot of responsibility um, for them to represent and lead their communities both in this world and then of course looking forward um, uh, in the medieval mind also uh, towards salvation and the continuity of their communities into the next world. Okay, so so these people have got a pretty big job. They're important figures in the community. Now, to get to to the to the nub of your research um, uh, and looking at the writing of history by these people, um, was it stated anywhere that uh, abbots or, or indeed monks, the monks beneath them, had any sort of duty to record or write history? The simple answer is no. It was not. Um, and this might strike us as surprising um, because even if we look into the, particularly the, the early monastic rules and, 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 and uh, customs, um, there is, as you say, there's nowhere any indication that writing history should be part of the daily duty of a monk, an abbot, a nun or an abbess. Um, so the, the question, of course, then would be, why did they do it? Um, and this leads us into, I think, the very heart of the research that I that I do or that I did with this project and I'm currently writing up for the book. Um, and it's not easy to give a simple answer, as you might imagine, because, you know, there's a whole range of motivations for people for writing history, both in the Middle Ages and today. Um, but when it comes to abbots and abbesses in particular, we can we can define across the map if we look across um, medieval Europe um, as I do in the book. So I, I set very wide chronological and geographic parameters that capture um, most of Northwestern Europe with occasional forays into, into Southern Europe and, and um, Central Europe as well, and into Scandinavia. Um, we, we do see that certain motivations seem to be paramount. And they, again, they have to do, and this leads back to what I said earlier, with the different forms of involvement that these men and women have both within their communities, but also within wider society. Um, so some of them write history to provide 
their communities with a written version of the past and their place in it, um, almost a sense of belonging, if you if you want. Others write history, and this is not exclusive. Some of them do both. Others write history um, related to the the families of the the founders and foundresses and and the benefactors of their monasteries. Others write even more wide ranging universal histories and chronicles. Um, so there's a whole range of, of histories that these abbots write, and the motivations are in many ways as individual as they are for any other type of writing. So it's very difficult to pinpoint a, and perhaps futile to try and pinpoint one motivation for all abbots and abbesses that wrote history across Europe over centuries. And were, were they, were they, you, so you've just said that they were, there was lots of different things they were doing, lots of reasons they were doing it for. Um, so this question is, is, is slightly silly then, but was was the, uh, what they wrote, uh, what they produced, was it different to what monks or nuns were producing? Because they, they were also producing works of history. Not in principle. And what I mean by this is if you looked at a, um, say at a chronicle or history written by an abbot or abbess uh, without knowing by whom it was written and put it next to another chronicle or work of history written by a monk or a nun or somebody else entirely, um, you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell the difference straight away from the way it looks or the form it takes. Um, but what, what I want to showcase with that project is that it didn't matter whether the author or indeed commissioner of this history was an abbot or abbess, not so much by virtue of the internal qualities of the works, but by how they used their authority, the resources at their disposal as leaders of these communities to support the writing of history, to facilitate and promote it. So it's it's actually more of a, a whole apparatus of historiographical projects that, that matters to me rather than necessarily only the individual works. And this is where abbots and abbesses really become a case apart because they have the authority by virtue of their standing within the communities by virtue of their social political influence to, to commission these histories, either from members of their own communities, if indeed there are any capable of doing so, or indeed by bringing in people from, from external places, by you know looking outside the cloister um, and, and pay or otherwise compel men and women to write history for them. So it's this, this influence, this authority, those resources that are really interesting for me and to see how they are deployed strategically by abbots and abbesses in a, in a very holistic way, not just by putting pen to parchment themselves, but also by being patrons, by being commissioners, by being intellectual architects, by being project managers of historical writing. So it's a, it's a much bigger understanding of what, it, what writing history actually is and does than simply thinking of, perhaps in the modern sense, of a historian who sits down almost in perfect isolation with a bunch of books. Yeah. Okay. We'll come back to the to the process of uh, of, of writing and how they actually um, how they actually did it in a second. But um, am I right in thinking you found uh, around about seventy examples of, of of abbots and abbesses who 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 produced historical works? That was the first sort of ballpark figure when I started uh, the project. Have we got a higher number now? Expanded. Um, so basically, well, we're well in the three digits by now. Okay. Um, especially as a result of what I just said, where. Even for abbots and abbesses who write themselves, uh, who are what we might call authors today, um, these are already well over 100 um, um, across the Middle Ages and across mid uh, the Latin West. But once we add these 
abbots and abbesses acting in these other capacities, the numbers become even greater. You know, the, the ones that commission, the ones that patronize, the ones that support. Um, so yeah, we, I'm in the book uh, having the very uh, challenging, uh, if quite thankful task of condensing this mass of really big data into, into a, an argument and a narrative that can be developed on the basis of key examples of individuals and particular communities that I, based on the research I've done, consider to be representative of a broader situation. And are, from that, from that um, hundred or so group of people you found, are there any particularly notable or colourful figures who you think our listeners might be interested in? <laughs> well, there are many, um, and it's a, again, it's a difficult task, like with the book, to, to cherry pick the ones um, that I think might make for a particularly good story. Um, but I, perhaps one I would like to I would like to highlight here um, is Abbot Aigil of Fulda. Um, Carolingian period. Uh, he's the fourth abbot of Fulda, um, and indeed, Where's Fulda. Fulda. My apologies. Fulda is in Germany, in what is today Germany, and actually not very far from the place I am from myself. So there's a it's a, a joy of being able to research something that used to be on my doorstep for so many years. Even though when I was younger, I couldn't be less interested in uh, in Fulda or its monastery, <laughs> uh, but that fortunately has changed over the years. Um, and the, the interesting thing here is that what, what Aigil does when he, shortly after he becomes the fourth abbot of Fulda, is he sets out to write down an account of the life and deeds of the first abbot of Fulda, Sturmi or Sturmius, who was a kinsman of his. Um, so that it's a close uh, family relation going on there as well. Um, but not enough on top of that, he also appoints another monk within Fulda's monastic community to write the lives and deeds of the second and third abbots of Fulda respectively. Um, so what, in practice, what Aigil achieves is he sets or establishes the, the very basis for a serial history of abbots of Fulda um, by writing the very first one himself, almost, I believe, as a model for the second and the third to follow in his own lifetime. Um, and then the the person who writes the these other third and fourth uh, second and third um, sorry um, abbatial vita then also writes Aigil's own life after his death. So by the end of that, we have histories of the first four abbots of Fulda, um, which then gets continued in subsequent generations and expanded. Um, so in a way, we can really see this particular abbot drawing on all his resources and abilities, both as an author himself, but also as somebody who actually has the authority to appoint somebody else to continue his work. Um, and on top of that, he does something extremely interesting, which is he builds, and I mean this in the literal sense, he builds a historical environment within which these histories are located. Um, for example, he finishes... Um, a project um, initiated by his predecessors, uh, which is the Great Basilica of Fulda, um, within which he relocates the remains, the venerated remains of this first abbot and gives them a very prominent place for veneration, both by members of the community and by pilgrims. He builds a, a second church in the monastic graveyard that he models on the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem and establishes as a final resting place for Fulda's abbots, almost as if to, to take 
this serial history and locate it physically within the monastic landscape where it can be experienced by walking around, by, by looking around. And again, both for members of the community itself, but also for visitors, for guests, for powerful patrons, and really showcase this, this powerhouse that Fulda is becoming in that period from all angles and situating it very firmly within the history, both of the monastery itself, but also of the wider world. So it sounds like this is all about uh, stressing the importance of, of a monastic institution and the, the venerability of it, and and you know, bigging up the the founders and the benefactors. Is that is that one of the the, the key motivations behind uh, this chap and and the other writers for, for what they're trying to do? This is part of it, yes. So, um, and this this is a debate that's been going on for for a long, long time, but that seems to have flared up particularly in the last few years with a few very important key publications um, in the field of medieval history that have turned specifically to look at how individual monastic communities have dealt with, constructed, construed sometimes their own relative, uh, their own narratives of the past and um, pleasing or incorporating powerful benefactors and founders, aristocratic families, um, dynasties, royal houses um, is one of the motivations alongside many others. Um, another motivation that we find stressed quite frequently um, in scholarship are uh, is overcoming moments of crisis, um, collective crisis that can either arise um, by internal struggle um, or through external challenges brought onto the community. Um, for example, if their, um, their possessions um, or their lands are being challenged um, by a local secular prince or a bishop and things like that. Um, and what I would like to do with the book is also to to call for a bit of caution with this, um, because I think it is very easy, and in some cases perfectly accurate, to, to emphasize crisis as a motivator for writing history. But I think it is also very simplistic if we do it sort of as a matter of course. And I think we do these monks and nuns and abbots and abbesses injustice if we think that crisis is the prime motivator for them to pick up the pen and write down their own history. I think there's a much more intrinsic, there's a much more organic motivation at work as to why they want their histories to be put into writing. And this has to do with questions of identity that are, much, that are rooted much more deeply than just as a pragmatic tool of resolving a particular conflict. You know, it's not just a, a hammer to crack a nut. It's something that that is much more, much more important and has a much more central place within religious life, both in the mid Middle Ages and today, than than uh, we could possibly express by looking only at history as a response to some sort of stimulus. Got it. Right. So I want to just um, uh, spend a few minutes just trying to understand how these histories were, were produced, what the process was, and what the understanding of, of history as a, a term was at the time. So the, the Fulter example you just gave there, it sounded a little bit like journalism more than history in the sense that he, he was quite close to the to the period of, of, of Stormius, what, just three generations back. Uh, I guess he was getting oral testimony to inform himself. So, so what, what were the sources that, uh, that, that, that were being used? And, and what was the general understanding of what history was all about? Like how, how interested were people in factual accuracy, I guess? Were they making stuff up? 
This is it's very interesting. This is a question we we always address very early to our students um, who study medieval history and medieval um, historiographical sources, that there is, of course, an understanding of what history, or at least good history, should be in the medieval period, just as there is today. And whilst it shares certain features with what today we expect of a historian, um, it is also quite distinct. Um, because whereas you find in a lot of prologues and prefaces of medieval um, historical narratives, you find topoi and commonplaces where they stress that, of course, only the truth must be written and we must not uh, include any fiction and we must not make anything up or falsify. Um, that is that is all very true. And that is, I guess, in many, in many regards, also what these writers actually did or at least attempted to do. Um, but the the notion of truth itself that we're dealing with here is quite distinct from the notion of, say, factual accuracy or objectivity, as we often understand it and actually tend to expect it from historians today. And, you know, it is, of course, a perfect illusion that any historian, medieval or modern, could write entirely free of bias or subjectivity because we're all, we're all shaped by the circumstances within which we write, how we were brought up, the societies in, in which we live. Um, but we try to distance ourselves, today at least, as much as possible from the subject matter of the histories that we write. And this is not something that we should expect from medieval historians, that sense of distance. There's quite often a very obvious connection, um, a, a bias that can be very unapologetically applied to a work. And you remember early on, we talked a bit about St. Benedict himself and how he was um, described and, and perhaps shaped into this larger-than-life figure by, by Gregory the Great. Um, and there's no question there that Gregory meant to write down what he considered as truth. But at the same time, of course, he did write with a very clear bias that is, that is evident to anyone reading his dialogues. So we're dealing with a very different understanding of historical truth um, that is not l more or less true than any history we write or read today, but it's very different. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Where's the monastic understand understanding of time? Both medieval and modern, in many ways, is very cyclical in nature. Not just if you look at the repetitive nature of the church year and the feasts and all of that and the calendars, but also how every individual day is, is designed around certain hours of prayer, certain hours for activities, and that repeats itself. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter, because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly 
brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So just to drill into that idea of truth just a little bit closer. So there were uh, secular historians at the time, people who weren't involved in, in religious life, who weren't involved in monastic communities writing history. Is there any difference in the sort of the objectivity, the understanding of truth or the interest in being honest between a secular person writing history and someone from a monastic community? There, there are, surely, there are differences here. Um, one thing to remember is, however, that even secular writers at the time, um, except perhaps for the very end of the Middle Ages, um, and even there to a point, I guess, they still live within a society that is heavily shaped by religion. So just because they're not part of a religious community, like a monastery or, or, or similar, that doesn't mean they don't operate um, along similar lines when it comes to you know, conceptualizing the, the role of an individual or society on a larger path that ultimately is geared towards um, salvation. Right? So this is why you quite often in scholarship find history written in the medieval period expressed as salvation history. Um, and whilst there are, of course, important nuances here, um, at least in the in the Christian Latin tradition, this is a very powerful motive that that is that can be found even in the writings of secular writers. But yes, you're absolutely right. If we look into monastic communities, we can, of course, and we should expect a lot more and perhaps more explicit um, dealings with the fact that that human life, especially as it was led by monks, nuns, um, abbots and abbesses, is, of course, almost entirely geared towards serving God through everyday labor, um, prayer, liturgy and other activities, and therefore quite naturally claims a very prominent position within the motivation of these histories. So, um, so the Fulda example you gave earlier um, was was fairly on in our period, so eighth century, I think, a, a, around about that. Um, so, presumably, at that point, there weren't that many uh, documents or manuscripts available in in the library at, uh, at Fulda. Um, perhaps there were. Perhaps I'm perhaps I'm wrong. But as we as we progress through the period, I one would imagine there'll be more and more documents, more and more things produced, more sources for the for the abbots and the abbesses to rely on. Um, so, does the process of writing history become different as they have more background material to uh, to, to to delve into um, as we move f through the medieval period? Um, just to start with a with a quick observation, actually Fulda has a, a remarkably large library in this period, one of the one of the biggest and perhaps most well equipped one, and also one that has left us, albeit in fragmentary fashion, um, a, a few inventories yeah. or even catalogues, as you might want to call them. So it's a it's a bit of a case apart, but but of course, yes, generally as as the the sheer amount of written material increases, um, you find that more and more writers are, are obviously able to rely on, on previous works, which they might continue or redact or even employ uh, in their own writing. Um, whereas, particularly in, in the sort of very early medieval period, um, you, you have more writers, um, I think, within these individual monastic communities who have, to, who have to translate what would have been oral tradition into a first written history of their community. 
um, usually around three generations into the community. It's a uh, sort of a threshold that we see in quite a lot of them where oral information is at the risk of being forgotten and therefore has to be made durable and enshrined in writing, which doesn't render it, you know, entirely stable forevermore. And of course, it can be questioned, it can be modified. But this initial act of codification, of putting something into writing is a very important one. Um, as we then move forward um, through the medieval period and these institutional and in many cases private libraries as well grow, um, we see, especially if you think about the later 12th and then into the 13th and 14th centuries, the rise of the universities and, and education um, for members of those monastic communities as well, where many monks go and study at universities, um, including their abbots. Um, we see a very, perhaps a very different use of the written word than we see in, in earlier centuries. Thinking about the, the wider picture here, how far did the, the uh, histories written by these abbots and abbesses disseminate across uh, medieval society? Were they sort of contained within their institutions or did they spread out? Did they uh, affect or impact on the way that other people uh, understood the history of those institutions or more widely history in general? It always depends a bit where, what kind of history we're looking at. If it is if it is a, an internal a house chronicle or, as I said, for Fulda, these lives of the earliest abbots, these are texts which are primarily of interest to members of these communities themselves, which doesn't mean they don't get disseminated and read elsewhere necessarily, but the chances of that happening are much smaller, obviously, than if you have, say, um, an abbot or abbess write a universal chronicle that um, pertains to a much wider territory and also to a much longer chronology, potentially. Um, so some of these works get read and copied and disseminated virtually across medieval Europe, resulting in hundreds of, of manuscripts um, that survive, whereas others survive in very, very small numbers, sometimes only in the autographs, as in the um, books or, or individual sheets of parchment written by their authors. Um, and sometimes they don't survive at all, where the only evidence we have for them are through library inventories, book lists, or because somebody else told us that Abbas X or Abbot X wrote something, um, but we have no trace of the text anymore. So the dissemination very much depends on what kind of history it is, and and how wide an interest it caters to. So I guess that's kind of the fun and the frustration of your research project is you're seeing little little hints and tidbits of, of sources that you're probably never going to see. Oh yes, and it is. There's a, many a rabbit hole uh, in that as well, where where you end up chasing um, quite obscure references um, and and make your way through uh, these days, fortunately, increasingly digitized repositories of medieval manuscripts um, across the world um, and or catalogues to find, if any, a very remote traces of a text. But quite often, yes, this, this can lead to a situation where we are in no position anymore to establish what a particular abbot or abbess wrote. But in other, in other instances, for example, we have a very clear and good sense because these texts fortunately have come down to us in more or less complete versions. And, and in, in terms of those complete versions, I suppose the, the, the fragments that you talk about, what do these surviving sources uh, tell us about the nature of medieval monasticism uh, and or medieval society as a whole? What do, how, what's, what's, the, what's the bigger picture that we ought to be aware of? <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a very big question, that. Um, I, I guess 
for me, looking into chronicles and other historical narratives written within monasteries, and particularly for this project, um, by abbots and abbesses, or at the commission, at the request, um, or with the support of, the, of these individuals, um, tells us, I think, a lot about some of the structural ways in which religious communities that we perhaps traditionally and certainly in the more public awareness, I guess, think of as quite distanced from the rest of society, actually interlink very actively, not just with one another by forming networks, but also with princely and royal courts, with um, you know, emerging urban centers, um, and, and with all levels and all strata of society by virtue of writing history. Now, uh, one of the really interesting things that you did in this research project, as I mentioned in the introduction, is you spent a week at a monastic retreat uh, at Downside Abbey. Um, so that sounds really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about Downside uh, and, and, and your involvement with them in your research? Absolutely. Pleasure. Um, Downside Abbey in Stratton-on-the-Foss in Somerset. So not quite on the doorstep. Well, it might be, but it's, it's, it takes a while to get there because of Somerset roads. Um, is is which makes it so interesting and made it so interesting for me, um, a monastic community that is still functioning today. Um, so you still have um, now an abbot um, and, and a group of monks living Benedictine religious life uh, according to more or less the same principles as they were set down in the rule of St. Benedict, as I say, with certain adjustments, um, but but very much in that tradition and, and consciously so. Um, and it was clear from the very beginning that for a project such as this, where one of the key aims is to find out the communal functions, the communal uses of history um, and, and historical writing and historical narratives, to have a community such as Downside um, and talk to the monks about the role that history plays in their lives today would be an invaluable um, resource to draw upon. And that is indeed what what happened as well. We had a we organised a series of events, some public, um, some internal, um, workshops, lectures, um, all sorts, um, and and really became, if if I may use the term, a community in our own right of researchers, um, monks, students, um, who together, I I would like to think, managed to shed light on some of these topics in a way. That is almost impossible to do if you do it solely within the confines of a university or even an individual office. Um, and, and that, to me, was one of the great pleasures of, of doing this, this project. And um, one of the outputs of that, that is uh, still online and will be um, all the way till 2025, is an online exhibition, uh, History and Community, um, 20 exhibits from Downside Abbey, um, taken from the Abbey's fantastic archives and special collections, but also from all around the monastery. So we have architectural um, elements in it. Uh, we have ev items of everyday use, um, material objects, photographs, um, stories, paintings, drawings, um, literally anything you can think about that can be situated within a historical context and the way that history matters to the community. And I would encourage all your listeners to have a look at it because um, I really believe it, it has it is a it is an exhibition of which both I uh, I am not ashamed to say and I think also the community can be very proud. 
we'll uh, we'll attempt to stick a link to that in in the show notes. So so did you actually live as a like a monk for a week? What what, what were you doing? How 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 was it helping you to understand? I mean, because you're you're a historian, uh, and were you able to get a better sense about the the, the monastic historians who your predecessors from actually doing? This? <laughs> I did I did not live as a monk. Um, I did not dress as a monk either. Um, uh, which I was very glad about. It was very cold. It was uh, the beginning of the year, January. Um, so, the what what really for me was the perhaps the the most valuable thing, and that I had been looking forward to the most, was to immerse myself for a week within the monastic routine of of doing things, of living life, of structuring an individual day or a whole week. Um, which is something that, of course, I had read about many a time, but actually doing it really gives you a very different understanding of of not just how time works within a religious community, but also of how it influences the view on history more generally. I mean, today we tend to think of, of history and time very much as a linear development. We start somewhere day x and then time will just progress um and and eventually at an undefined date perhaps end at some point or go on forevermore um but that is how we how we think of time in history generally and this is what you will find in any history textbook timelines um that are linear like you can draw them with a ruler um, whereas the the monastic understand understanding of time both medieval and modern in many ways is very cyclical in nature, um, not just if you look at the the repetitive nature of the church year and the feasts and all of that and the calendars, um, but also how every individual day is is designed around certain hours of prayer, certain hours for activities, um, and that repeats itself, and um, that repeats itself theoretically forevermore. But of course, there is also an end point. Um, which is in itself a cyclical movement because it brings the history of salvation full circle. And um, some of you listening might think, oh, we're getting quite sort of a esoterical, a philosophical, a spiritual right now. Um, and this for me was a very, very good experience because I'm, I'm personally speaking, I'm not a particularly uh, religious person and wasn't raised that way either. Um, so I can only wholeheartedly recommend that to any historian of medieval religious culture and monasticisms um, to seek out these opportunities and and do a retreat, spend time in an active religious community and get to experience that form of life firsthand. Yeah, I mean that, that, that sounds absolutely fascinating. And I don't know any monks, so um, so I, I I can be I can't be shouted down by them. But are, are you are you essentially saying that there's a, a sense by experiencing modern monasticism? In its uh, in in its true form, that you can get a better idea of medieval attitudes. Now that sounds that could sound a little bit derogatory to monks. I don't know. That's why that's why I'm worried about. It. But is 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 there a sense that they the the continuation of their of their of their way of life actually does bring in some elements of of a medieval mindset? Absolutely. And I don't think. And you know, I'm aware I'm speaking on behalf of the monks of Downside, which I should, of course, not do. But I, I don't think they'd be offended. If they heard you say that, you know, what they do has medieval aspects to it, because it's not really derogatory at all. It's it's much more 
a heritage, a tradition that they embrace quite actively, as do most monastic communities, and a heritage that they that they showcase and are proud of as well, and rightly so. Um, and yes, I do think, whereas experiencing life in a contemporary religious community and a contemporary monastery is, of course, not um, equivalent to a snapshot from a medieval community because you know it, it is not the same. It is similar, but it is not the same. It nevertheless functions according to shared principles that are true and applicable today, just as they were in the age of St. Benedict himself, the Carolingian period, the 11th or 12th centuries, um, with a certain degree of flexibility and adjustment um, as required by, by chronological developments and, and local specificities. But nevertheless, part of a tradition that ultimately points back from our present time all the way into the early Middle Ages. Excellent. That is that is really, really interesting. Um, we covered a load of stuff. So so when the book uh, Medieval Abbots and the Writing of History, what's the publication date on that? Have we got a, a timeline? <laughs> or is well, it a cyclical timeline? A cyclical timeline. Yeah, it gets republished constantly. Um, no. Um, we. I hope to submit the full manuscript um, before the end of this year. This is the, the firm plan. Um, and then it is in the hands of the readers and publishers to decide um, when it might hit the shelves, but uh, hopefully before long. And you've also got uh, the Cambridge Companion to the Age of William the Conqueror coming out at some point soon. Yes, well. that should come out, uh, Touchwood, next year. Okay, brilliant. Well, Benjamin, thank you so much for your time. That's been absolutely fascinating and, uh, and a real insight into, into monasticism and the medieval mindset. So thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you. That was Benjamin Pohl. If you want to look at the online exhibition that Dave and Benjamin discussed, you can find it at historyandcommunity.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in again tomorrow when Dennis Duncan will be speaking about the unexpected history of the index. Music